Uh, Nick, welcome back to Chicago. You were here a couple weeks ago, and many of us watched on the Discovery Channel. It's great you, to be uh, here. It's great to be back in this beautiful, this beautiful region. Warm. The, the blessing of that yes. night is it's, <laughs> it's, it's colder in here this morning than it was that night. <laughs> well, we saw, we saw you walk across the Chicago River hundreds of feet up, and, uh, and then between the marina towers and, and whatnot. What was, the, uh, what was the most challenging part of that walk for you? Getting the permits to do it. <laughs> you know, um, honestly, every aspect that is, of it is a huge challenge, including the permitting process. You know, agreeing to, uh, getting a city to agree to shut down for an event like that is, is a major undertaking. Uh, so that part of it, and then of course the training that goes into it, that blindfold walk and, and the incline walk um, were extremely challenging. You know, as most of you who ever watched on TV saw that as I was getting ready to, to walk up that incline of what I was told was going to be 15 degrees and what I trained and prepared for, my engineer came up about an hour before and said, it's at 19 degrees now, um, which makes it even more challenging. I've done this my entire life. It is my passion. My great-grandfather said life is on the wire. Everything else is just waiting. It really is a lifestyle, not a career to me. So walking the wire comes natural. It is the mental preparation that leads up to it that is the biggest yeah. challenge, overcoming what you would call fear and turning it to respect. And a lot of that comes with training and preparing properly for every event. Well, you know, I want to know, how many of you tried to walk a straight line blindfolded after you saw him do this? Anybody? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if you haven't tried it, try to do it sometime. Cross your living room, family room floor. It's nearly impossible to do that. I heard, you know, some, some journalist tweeted that afterwards you walked into a, uh, you know, a post-walk meeting and you, you had a blindfold on just to kind of spoof, joke, and you tripped. Is, <laughs> well, was that true? I'm, I'm also a showman through and through, and uh, that was all part of, the, part of the show, part of the plan. But it is true that I walked into the press conference immediately after the walk with a blindfold on and tripped over one of the journalists. <laughs> I'm glad it didn't happen way up, uh, you know, 600 feet in the, in the air. How did your uh, life as an aerialist get started? Well, you know, it really, my family history started back in the 1780s. So over seven generations, over 200 years ago, my family wow. began performing and entertaining people. Um, but I was born into it. I started walking wire at the age of two, about two feet off the ground. That was with my mom's assistance. And, you know, even in my backyard, it's like a playground. When I was growing up, I saw this wire. I saw my parents doing what they loved doing, which was walking on a wire and playing on that wire. And I wanted to be a part of it. Um, but actually, my mom was six months pregnant with me and still walking the wire. So really, I've walked a wire longer than I've been alive. <laughs> um, but truly, um, uh, started at two years old, started in the entertainment world in front of live audiences at two years old as well. I was a clown, actually, and I would come out in a pillowcase. I'd be carried out and dumped on the stage by some other clowns, and I would do a little bit of a routine in a skit. And that's how I had my, made my first appearance in front of a live audience. Wow. Now, the most famous Willenda, until you, Nick, was, was your great-grandfather, Carl. In fact, I invited a friend to, uh, to come here last night, and uh, he called back and said, I'm so sorry I can't make it to see Carl Walenda. I say, well, it'd be amazing if you saw <laughs> it Carl. It would be pretty, Carl, pretty impressive. You're, you're great, but, I'd but definitely that, be name, here for that. that name lingers on. And it he does. was a role model for you, but both good and bad. I mean, t talk about that, the good side, the bad side. 
you know, my great-grandfather was, is a huge inspiration to this day behind what I do. If it wasn't for him and it wasn't for him bringing the family over here in 1928 to perform, I wouldn't be here today and I wouldn't have uh, the opportunity or the blessing to carry on this amazing legacy. Um, he was an innovator. He was a creator. He was a driven man. He lived by the same three words that I live by, which are never give up. Uh, a hard worker. And uh, those were all the positive aspects, but then he was also what you would imagine a daredevil to be. He enjoyed having a good time. He uh, was very much a womanizer um, and not a great example in those senses. Yes, um, and yeah. thank God I had great, a great upbringing with parents that loved the Lord and taught me the difference between here's, the, here's what you need to look at him for and take the good and then leave the bad behind. Yeah. I got to tell you, if you're looking for a good read, I love biographies. And uh, I read Nick's autobiography, just came out this, this past year. I read it about, about a month ago, and it is really intriguing. Um, one of the things I did, I had to keep flipping back and forth because of your great-grandfather's womanizing. I, I was trying to follow the family line, and it's all over the place. It like, is all uh, over the place. Which woman was this, you know? So, so there was that good, and there, there was that bad. He died a very public death. I mean, talk about that and, and, and how you first became acquainted with that. Because you weren't born at the time. I wasn't. Uh, he died about nine months, fell to his death in Puerto Rico about nine months before I was born. Uh, my introduction to his death was watching TV with my parents as a small child and, and, and uh, something coming on. Uh, it's shown often on TV, uh, some sort of a TV special, and here it was, a picture of image of my great-grandfather falling to his death. And I remember thinking, why are my parents doing this? Why would they carry on this if we've lost family members, just like you're probably thinking why I do it? <laughs> um, and then I kind of realized that, uh, well, we learned a lot from that, for one. Um, it was a very public death, and that was a very, um, a very moving point in my life of, of questioning, why is my family carrying this on after all of this tragedy? And, um, you know, we've learned a lot. We learned that, for one, my great-grandfather had, wind had nothing to do with him falling whatsoever. The rigging was put up improperly. So what did we learn? We learned that the rigging has to be perfect every time. Um, we have to have several layers of safety checks. My father's my head safety guy. My uncle's my lead engineer. And we have four other layers of, three other layers of engineering behind him that oversee, and there's redundancy in everything we do. So we've learned from that. And then also, my great-grandfather often said, this is the way that I live, this is life to me, and this is the way I want to die. He was quoted saying that many, many times. Well, I don't want to die that way. I want to die in a nursing home at 105 years old in a bed next to my wife. I have no <laughs> desire to die in a wire. Uh, but, but also, he did everything right. We, I've been trained since I was two years old that if I ever get off that wire, if I ever slip, I go down and I catch that wire no matter what. My great-grandfather did that. He went down and grabbed that wire. Because he was 73, he had a double hernia and an injured collarbone at the time. And, and honestly, with all due respect, because he is a very much an inspiration to me, shouldn't have been walking the wire anymore. He should have wow. probably either stopped until he recovered or given it up altogether. Uh, so uh, is what I learned from that was, and what we learned, is there's a safety protocol. I have to be able to hold that wire for 20 minutes. If there's ever an issue, I go down to that wire. I train in winds, I've trained in winds of 120 miles an hour before. 120 mile an hour winds didn't pick me up and throw me off that wire. Now you would think, well, if you hit with 60, 70, 80 miles an hour on a sidewalk, it throws you over. That's correct. With a balancing pole, I can counterbalance that. It buys me time and I can adjust to that wind. Same thing if you're on a sidewalk and you had a balancing pole. You can adjust if you're trained properly. Um, so knowing that 120 mile an hour winds I can walk in, I consistently train in 60 to 90 mile an hour winds. I've trained in tropical storms. When there's a storm that rolls through Florida, instead of going to the beach to surf, I actually get on a wire and start training because it's perfect practice. Um, so, so all of that is about preparation and being prepared for those worst cases. 
If the winds were over 50 miles per hour in any of those situations, 50 to 55, I wouldn't get on the wire in the first place. Knowing that I can handle 120 mile an hour winds, knowing that I grab that wire and hold on for 20 minutes, and knowing that we have a rescue team that is trained to get to me within 60 to 90 seconds anywhere I am on that wire. So because it looks so dangerous, this guy on this wire in the middle of a city over 500 feet up, of course there's dangers there, but it is a lot safer. It's much more of a calculated risk than you could ever imagine. Yeah, right. <laughs> You're crazy, bro, okay? <laughs> you're, I'll you're take just, that as a compliment, yeah. I guess. <laughs> did, did I hear correctly that Discovery Channel, in, in part because of what happened to, to your great-grandfather, that everybody watched this trage tragedy as it unfolded, that yeah. the Discovery Channel ran like a 10-second delay or they something did. like that? They did. So if you had fallen, they would not, they would not have shown That's right. Up. There's always a 15-second delay, as Jimmy Kimmel said, taking away the primary reason that most people were watching. Um, <laughs> But again, it is about protecting the viewers and, and stuff. What, what does that do to you, knowing that there are people watching thinking, this would be really cool if the dude fell? You, you know, know? And, and that's true. Actually, sometimes I sit with my crew and I'll, I'll go on Twitter and read all the negative tweets to them, and it's hilarious just to read them. But there are a lot of negative people out there, a lot of people that want to focus on the negative. There's, you know, a certain percentage of people that watch NASCAR races for the accident more than they do for the checkered flag. Um, it, it's part of my heritage. It's part of what, what I do. My job is to prove them wrong every single time that I get on that cable in extreme conditions. Okay. Let's, let's go back to your, your mom and dad. Cause, so you've got seven generations of Walendas, but at some point your folks bought into this whole thing and they became performers. They talk, did. Talk, talk to us about that. So my mom is the Walenda. My grandmother's the Walenda. Carl Walenda was the last male that had uh, children, so we carried on through my mother's lineage, my grandmother's lineage. Uh, the Walenda name. So my father wasn't a Walenda. He actually married into the family industry. He was at a circus school in Sarasota, where I live now. Actually, me and my wife volunteer there now, training other people uh, to learn how to do what we do. Uh, but my father came there. He, he went to that school, and one day he picked up the phone, and he called my great-grandfather and said, hey, I would love to go on the road with you. I'd love to learn to walk the wire and, and be part of your support team. And uh, Carl said, great, I'd love to hire you. And he hired my father to go on the road and help put up and down the equipment. And as he was putting it up and down, learned to walk the wire. He fell in love with my mom and they ended up getting married. Um, and then they started their own wire act. They started their own troupe and started performing all around the world. It was a really an amazing life that, that I had and, and uh, very, consider myself very blessed to have the upbringing that I did. Touring all over the world, seeing, uh, you know, every major, uh, every attraction you could imagine growing up. You know, my history lessons were at the Smithsonian. Um, just, just an amazing life. Uh, a very close family because we traveled in an RV often or a hotel room. So we were always, we had to be close. We didn't have a choice. There was no way, go to your room. Well, the room is, you're all in the same room at that point. <laughs> um, so because of that, we had a close family. But there were also many struggles. There, yes. were, there were financial struggles. Um, my parents had a really tough time making ends meet. Here they were doing what they loved, what their passion was, but had just like the, the, the famous statement of the starving artist. That was my parents. They were the starving artist. At, at 13, my parents went bankrupt. And I, never, I will never forget sitting in my bed with tears in my eyes, taking on the burden that my parents had gone bankrupt and saying, God, I want to walk the wire. I love performing. I want to carry this on, but I'm not going to be able to because here my parents are going through this really tough time. And I don't know that I would have been able to make it. I mean, there was a very dark time at 13 years old taking on that burden. Very dark time in my life. But then I always looked back to the scripture and God will never leave or forsake me. And although I felt alone, I knew 
that the Bible was true and that God was always there the entire time through all of that. And that's how I was able to make it through those struggles, even at such a young age. Wow. You know, we share something in common. Uh, I come from a circus family. Uh, way back on my mom's side, my grandmother rode bareback in the Eastern yeah. European circus. Uh, her husband, my grandfather, played tuba in the circus band, made enough money to move to the States, and wow. then started sending for family. My great-grandparents, they were part of the circus act. My great-grandfather was a hobo clown with a dog act, so I come from a long we line of clowns. A, we all have a hobo yeah. in our family. Yeah. <laughs> but I'll tell you what surprised me about this. As a kid, I remember going where you live now in Sarasota. Yes. I remember visiting friends of my grandparents thinking, these circus people, they're like movie stars. So I expected mansions and what, and it was a trailer park. Yeah. And it, it there's really not is. a whole lot of money in there this business. It, it is definitely a very rough industry to make a living in. Um, and, and an interesting tie-in is my family on my, my mom's father's side are bareback riders. Bareback riding in, in the circus industry is riding on the backs of horses and doing different things like juggling or doing pyramids. Well, that's what my family did, and that's yes. how I started. At, at two, I was, I was clowning, and then at four, I was riding bareback ride with my family. Wow. Actually, with my uncle, who actually lives in Aurora now. Uh, wow, wow. I'll tell you what was amazing about all these circus people, as poor as they, they were, as I remember, they're still doing their circus stuff, like into their 70s. And I remember an 80-something-year-old friend of yeah. my grandma's going down in the splits saying, watch this, <laughs> boom, and I'm, whoa. <laughs> Is she going to be able to get back up? <laughs> we just had a birthday party for my wife's grandmother, and she's in her late 80s. And we posed for a photo, and she went down in a split in front of all of us. So, uh, yeah, you know, it's fascinating. The fact that, that so many people in our industry do carry this on, I think it speaks to the passion and the love that we have for this. It's yes. more of a lifestyle than it is an occupation or career. Okay, talk to us about the Great Pyramid. So we saw a photo of that before you, you came on stage. There was a tragedy associated with that. But I just want everybody to understand, it's not just going from point A to point B across a tightrope. You guys do some crazy stuff out there. So the Great Pyramid. Yeah, you know, one of the things, one of the creations of my great-grandfather was the seven-person pyramid on the wire. It's three layers high. It starts with four people on the wire down low with, well, not down low, up about 30 feet, but they're on the actual wire, the main cable with a bar between their shoulders. Two people on top of that, and then a person on top of that that sits on a chair. Um, the pyramid wakes, makes its way out to the center of the wire. When it gets to the center of the wire, the, the person on the chair stands up, sits back down, and then it, they make their way back into the other side. It was an amazing feat he created back, I believe it was 1947 when he created that feat, and performed it all the way through until 1962 when they were performing at a shrine circus at the State Fair Coliseum in Detroit, Michigan. And as they made their way out on that wire, the very front man, which was my great-grandfather's nephew, um, had a bad habit. When you're walking a wire holding that balancing pole, it's very important in a pyramid that you keep your body very straight so you're not shaking the people on top of you and around you. Well, in order to do that, you have to hold a balancing pole that weighs about 45 pounds, at least the one that I use, and you have to keep your wrist curled the entire time. So it's a major forearm workout. So your, your forearms will start to cramp up. Well, he was in a habit. When his forearms would cramp up, he would actually throw that pole and re-grip it. And as they were making their way out in that pyramid, he actually threw his pole and missed as he went to regrip. And that pyramid was collapsed. And two of my family members were killed, and my uncle was paralyzed from the waist down from that accident. We were invited to go back in 1998 to recreate that exact pyramid in the exact arena on the exact cable for the exact same shrine circus. And um, it was a major point in my life, another turning point in my life. Here I was 18. 
through my parents' struggles, they really told me, you know what, I don't want you to carry this on. I want you to go on to college and do something else. Focus on that. You can't make a living. You can't support a family in this industry. And it was always a struggle because I really felt that God placed this desire in my heart to perform. I didn't really know how it was going to bring glory to his name. I do now. We, you know, God knows the beginning from the end. We don't. But at that point, I didn't realize that... Um, why I, why I wanted to carry this on, but I did in a big way. And, and my parents said, you know what, you need to go to college, you need to go to college. So I went and applied and got accepted to a university in Florida and planned on going to school to become a pediatrician. And it was as I was getting ready to go to college that my uncle called and he said, we've been called to go back to Detroit, Michigan to recreate that pyramid. And I went to my parents and said, I want to be a part of this. I want to do this. And my parents said, no, you need to go to college, you need to focus on that. So finally, I convinced my parents to allow me to, to recreate this pyramid with the family, as in, I wanted to show the world the Wallenders are still going strong, and this would be a big finish to, to me performing, and then I'd move on to do something else. And we arrived in Detroit, and I remember doing every TV show you could imagine. It seemed like satellite trucks for miles. The whole world had the, we had the attention of the world. They were captivated by us recreating this pyramid. Um, and, and I remember seeing that and going, you know, I don't think our industry is dying. I don't think it's a struggling industry. I think we have to change with the times, and we have to do it like my great-grandfather did. He was very successful. We need to change the way that things are done and do big, broad-scale events. And that's when I decided, you know what, I am going to carry this on, which was, a, again, a huge struggle with my parents, but I'm going to do it in a big way. And that's when I went to my family within weeks after, after that walk in Detroit and said, let's start training. I want to do the four-layer, eight-person pyramid. And my dad said, you're crazy. You can't do that, and, and you need to go to college and just forget about this. Leave this life behind. And I said, no, Dad, this is my desire. This is what I want to do. Let's, let's do this. And we did. We put together that pyramid, and in 2001, we break, broke our own family's Guinness World Record for the four-layer, eight-person pyramid. Wow. Nick, I want to talk to you about your spiritual journey for a moment. When you talk about dangerous acts like this four-tiered pyramid and whatnot, and you know, reprising something where people have been killed. You, you would just think anybody who does the kind of work you, you do would naturally be a believer in God. I mean, it's <laughs> like you got to be a prayer when you're up there on the wire. But as I read your, your autobiography, uh, there was a moment when uh, your, your mom and dad became committed followers of Jesus Christ. Just give a little background because this is how, this was the entry point of an ongoing relationship with Christ that, that uh, you know, came into your family. How did that happen? Yeah, I mean, it, was, it became real. My great-grandfather always, uh, and I didn't know this uh, until a few years ago doing an interview, and they played a clip of him doing a walk, but he always talked to God, too, while he was on the wire, which I thought was a very cool parallel between me and him. But he didn't really take it as, as, as serious as it, as it should be taken. My father, uh, in the off-season, because the business was struggling, would work for my grandfather on his side, his father, who owned a high-rise waterproofing business, and they would wash windows. He'd go up in scaffolding and wash windows and seal windows and paint high-rise buildings. And one day he was out there soon after getting married, and he was up on the side of a building by himself, and he kind of realized it dawned on him that he couldn't make it through this life on his own. It was a revelation that here, I remember him saying that he loved my mother so much and he was so imperfect and how was he going to um, be the, the husband that he needed to be? He couldn't do it on his own. And at that point, he, he called out to God. He said, God, I can't do this on my own. If you're real, reveal yourself to me. And God did in a major way. He was immediately filled with the Holy Spirit right there on the side of that building. Um, and and that really was a changing turning point of, of where we really saw God for God for who he was, for being a loving provider, for being uh, the provider of peace, um, for being a giver. 
uh, not a taker. I think we all see God as this condemning God that condemns us for sin, and, and uh, that's not who God is. God is such a loving God. He's there to provide for all of our needs and care for all of our needs, and that was when that was revealed to my father right there on the side of the building. You know, just a side note here, because recognize uh, as we sit here, we come from a variety of spiritual backgrounds, but when Nick uses terminology like he was filled with the Holy Spirit, one of the things God's Word promises is that when we get serious about God and surrender our lives to Him, when we give ourselves to Jesus as the Savior and King of our lives, God promises to send His Spirit to come live on the inside. And you, you like, go from spiritual dead to spiritual alive. Right. I mean, it's like, like a that. switch gets flipped, and it's, it's a whole new outlook, isn't it? It is, absolutely. And I, I know from reading your book that the Bible then became a really central uh, you know, a spiritual resource to your family. You're, you say your dad memorized large portions of it and taught you guys to do it. And Absolutely. Yeah, the scripture is, uh, you know, it's our guidebook in life. You know, I don't know how I would make it through, again, uh, without God in my life and without that guidebook there. Um, through the struggles that I've been through in life and the struggles that my parents have gone through and through their bankruptcy, if it wasn't for knowing that God was always there for me, I, I wouldn't have been able to make it through there. And I don't understand how people do it without God, to be yes. honest. Yeah. With, and another sign that you come alive spiritually is you, when you read the Bible instead of a dusty old book, archaic book, it's like it God life. speaking to you. That's right. It. Right. Now, let me, let me talk about a different aspect of your story. How did you meet your wife? Well, I met my wife performing, actually. She comes from eight generations of circus, over 300 years. The third oldest circus in the world is her family out of Australia. And uh, we were performing together since, actually, my parents and her parents, my grandparents and her parents all performed together, so for generations. And I have pictures with my wife at a birthday party where she was a year old and I was three years old. Uh, grew up together, um, performing, loving, having that same passion, and fell in love with each other. And, um, and uh, sharing those same passions is so important. Um, I don't know that anybody else, people say, how can your wife watch you do what you do? Well, it's because she has the same passions as me. She walks the wire alongside of me. She understands that passion for what I do. Um, but we, we, um, we had, a, a, you know, an incredible courtship throughout um, from the, the moment we started dating at 16 where we decided, you know what, we are going to focus on God. We courted each other. Uh, we waited till marriage. Uh, which was very important to us and something that I, I take a lot of pride in that a lot of people don't realize, but I think that makes uh, your marriage so much more special and so much more whole and so much more meaningful by doing so. Wow, wow. In your book, one, one of the things that amazes me about this book is your vulnerability, your openness about some struggles. And uh, not, not everyone is willing to be as publicly honest. And two in I've particular... I've taken some heat from my family for being so open. I, I'll bet you have. <laughs> Two in particular I want you to talk to us about, okay? One has to do with ego. So, you know, you, you exp there's a chapter in the book called Raw Ego, and you talk about the tension, but, you know, on the one side, you've got to be a self-promoter. In, right. in this. On the yeah. other side, in a relationship with God, there's only one God, That's and it right. ain't you. So, yeah, so how, do you, how do you work through that it's, tension? It's definitely a challenge when you do what I do, the ego... Um, you know, I've been taught my whole career to make things bigger than life and bigger than they are and told how great I am for these things that I've done and to not allow that to get to your head and, and realize that you have to surrender all to God. And I've struggled with that over the years. And 
thank God I have a very strong wife uh, who, who keeps my ego uh, at check, for sure, to say the least. But, um, they, have a, they have a way of doing that, don't they? They, they do, that's yeah. for sure. But really, um, I had to learn to surrender to God, that it wasn't about Nick. You know, before I got on that cable in Chicago and before I do every walk, give, let the glory go to God. This isn't about Nick Walenda. This is an ability that God has given me. And it's up to me how I use that ability. And I choose to use it to bring glory to God's name. You know, when I'm praying to God on that wire, I'm not praying that God holds me on that wire. I'm praying for peace that passes all understanding, which the word promises. And I'm praying for wisdom as I, as I make those first steps. Should I make these first steps? Weather, all of that. Um, so it's really not about God holding me on that wire in any way. But it's also important that I have the peace that I know that if something did happen to me, whether it be on an airplane, in a car, crossing the street, or on a wire, that if something happens to me and my life is taken away, that I have that eternal salvation, that Jesus is living in my heart, and I can have peace about where I'm going to go yes. if, if yes. and when I pass away. Yeah. I want to park on a key word you use. It's the word surrender. And we, we talk about that a lot at Christ Community Church, that, that a relationship with God is not simply about saying sorry, yeah. and then he says, okay, I'll forgive you. And, and then, you know, you get a get-out-of-jail-free card yeah. and you, you go to heaven. Someday. It's about surrendering. Absolutely. Jesus is not just a savior. He's a king. And you've got to leave the throne of your, your own life. That's right. And turn it over to the real king and say, okay, you're, you're in charge. That's right. Absolutely. And, and again, that's been a learning, a learning process in my life. Um, you know, through the successes and the blessings that I believe have all come directly from God, uh, where I am in my career, I, I can't see it possible to get to where I am without God and his help, but to surrender, surrender my ego, surrender that stuff to him. And again, the more that I've made it about God, the more blessings have come onto my life. The more that I haven't been embarrassed or ashamed of the gospel, uh, that I'm, I stand up and I'm not scared to talk to Jesus on national TV, live in over 220 countries around the world, uh, there's no shyness about the, that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel in any way. And the more that I've been bold about that, the more blessings have come on yes. my life and the more lives have been touched. You know, that's yeah. our purpose in life yeah. is to bring others to Christ. That, yeah. is, that is what it's all well, about. Thank you for doing that. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's an honor to do that. Yeah. yeah. And, and now that we've applauded, let me talk about another thing you were honest about. Shows what a dirtbag you are, okay? <laughs> you, you know, you had this, this tension with your wife, and it was for control. In it fact, at one point, I mean, he, here you are, a follower of Jesus. It just shows you're, you know, you never get over screwing up. But you, right. you reach the place in your marriage where uh, you're on the road, and she says, I've had enough of your attitude, Nick. And she goes back home, and you do the rest of the road trip on your own. Talk, talk about what was going on in your marriage and what you had to work through, how you resolved it. You know, it was, it was a struggle of me trying to control my wife. And, and as I learned, as I, I, I worked through those struggles, I realized that here is this guy that people see as a superhero, somebody who does stuff that is unreal, that, that does things that are seemingly impossible, that is fearless, but I was controlled by fear. It was fear, the fear of losing my wife, the fear of, of somebody else coming and taking my wife away, the fear of, of losing control, of not being in control of that situation. Again, it came down to surrendering to God and, and also realizing and recognizing the fact that I was controlled by fear. Here I do an occupation that you pretty much have to be fearless to, to be in. But I was controlled by fear and because of that, I was controlling my wife. And to the point where... I, I had, had controlled her so much that she said, I can't live this anywhere, anymore. I can't live in this cage. I, I have to have some freedom. 
And um, she, that's what she said. She left. She said, unless you're going to change, then I'm gone. I'm, I'm over this. I'm done. And um, again, God will never leave or forsake us, even those darkest hours. Uh, you know, I just got on my knees and started praying to God and saying, God, reveal to me because I'm blind to this. Here I thought I had a happy marriage and everything was great. And I didn't realize that I was smuggling my wife, that I was not giving her freedom. And, uh, and I had to, again, surrender to God and, and, and say, God, you know, I can't do this on my own. But with you, all things are possible. And praise God because he is perfect. He renewed our, 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 our marriage and it is stronger than ever. I've got three beautiful children. And uh, in January, we're actually, when we were younger, because of the financial struggles, we couldn't afford to have a wedding. So we got married at the courthouse. And because of that, my wife always wanted a wedding. And this January is our 15-year anniversary, and we're doing a full wedding ceremony. So we're very excited about that. Yeah, if you, if you don't have a preacher, I can. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, what I love about your story, what it illustrates, there's got to be a point in time when you initially surrender to Christ, when you make him Savior and King. But it doesn't mean the game's over. There, there are going right. to be repeated times along the way yeah, when mean, the true test of wh wh whether you, you truly have put your faith in Jesus is whether or not you're willing to continue to surrender. That's right. Just because we accept Jesus and ask him into our hearts, which is uh, you know, the most important thing that I've ever done, the best thing I've ever done in my life, it doesn't make us perfect. You know, Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That puts us all in the same boat. All of us are sinners. You know, and we have this perfect God who forgives us of those sins, but we continue to make mistakes. Ever since in the Garden of Eden that apple was eaten, uh, we have been imperfect, and God is the perfecter, and we have to continue to surrender to him because yes. we will continue to make mistakes. Um, and, you know, it's that, that never-ending struggle of, of life, and, and because sin entered the world, we can't be perfect except by accepting by asking Jesus into our heart. Yeah. Well, I'm going to come back to that when we, when we wrap up. But let me go back to uh, the aerialist part of you for, for a moment here. You've done the Grand Canyon. You've done Niagara Falls. You've done skyscrapers in Chicago. Like, what's left to do? <laughs> I ask myself that all the time. Um, my wife wants me to retire. Um, but, you know, I, I do have other dreams. Uh, one of my next walks that I'm hoping to do is uh, next year is the 45-year anniversary of my great-grandfather's greatest walk where he walked over to Lula Gorge in Georgia. And as he was walking a cable 600 feet high and about 1,200 feet across, he did two headstands on that wire. So immediately after Chicago, I was home by Thursday. I was on the wire training Friday to start doing those headstands. I want to recreate that in his honor. Um, but I'm also working on things like an active volcano. I've got a crew out right now trying to search for a location where I could walk over lava flow over a volcano. Um, and, and many, many other walks around the world that I have dreams of doing, uh, possibly one in London, one in Korea, and uh, again, all over the world. Do, do you have a therapist who signed off on the fact that... <laughs> A lava flow. I, I have the best therapist. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Hey, go back to the, the praying on the line. So you're walking across, and, and so many people have noted that. And some with chagrin, your grandstanding, etc. I mean, are, is it legit prayer? Are you? It, it absolutely is. You know, one thing that fascinated me is after I walked over, Niagara Falls was my first TV special. I'd done a TV series before that for the Discovery Channel, but Niagara Falls was shown live on ABC. And as I was walking that cable, and every cable that I walk on, I'm talking to God. That's where I find my peace. 
is by talking to God and often sing praise and worship songs to God. And the only reason why I don't do that on TV is because I can't carry a tune to save my life. <laughs> but other than that, uh, that's what I do. That's, that's what I do. That's me living my life. And I was fascinated with the fact that mainstream media, you know, including this last one in Chicago, every night show, Jimmy Kimmel, Fallon, Conan, um, all of them, they all talked about that event. Same with Niagara Falls. It was, it was David Letterman's top ten list that night. No one criticized me. No one ridiculed me in the mainstream media. Matter of fact, Howard Stern said I would be praising the name of Jesus too if I was on that wire. <laughs> um, so really, I, I really, I think that people see what I do and they see that it is so real that I am, it's just me living my life. It's in no way me preaching. It is just where I find my peace. Yes. I think, you know, we all need that peace. And I think everyone is searching for that peace. And, and, you know, praise God for great upbringing and great parents. I know where to find that peace that passes all understanding. And, and in my line of business, yes. it's so important that I stay calm when I get on that wire. When I become stressed out or be, when I come, become nervous, a 20-mile-an-hour gust of wind feels like it's 100 miles per hour when you're up that high. If I overbalance, which is what you tend to do when you become nervous, it becomes very dangerous. So I have to stay very, very calm. Focus. Yeah. And, and very, very focused. And that's where I find my strength is, yes. is in my yeah. Lord and Savior. Yeah. Well, let, let's bring things to a conclusion in that regard. Uh, one of the reasons we bring in WOW speakers periodically is we want to hear about people's faith journey. So in one sense, Nick Walenda can't be a role model for us because none of us are going to do the daring feats that, that you do. But in another sense, we could go to school on you as you talk about how a relationship with Christ centers you. How, what it means to surrender to him and how it's changed your life. You know, there are some of us who need that. So let's say you're sitting here at one of our campuses today, you're watching this, and you're saying, okay, I don't have the kind of relationship with Christ that Nick's talking about. How does it begin? I mean, put it as simply as you can. What are the steps we need to take in order to get started, whether we're 15 or, or 35 or 57 or whatever? Well, you know, the Bible in John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. The best decision I ever made in my life was to give my life to Christ, to ask Jesus into my heart. It's, it's, God makes it so easy. Everything is made so easy. If we could just trust in him fully, life would be so much easier. We wouldn't live with the stress that we live in. We put that stress on ourselves, and God is the provider of peace. And, and it is that simple act of just... Asking Jesus to live inside of us. Um, again, the best decision I've ever made in my life. What fascinates me about God, the creator of this universe, the creator of all of us, the perfect creator, that he loves me. He loves each and every one of you. He knows the number of hairs on your head, it says in his word. That's how much some, some of us is easier to count than others. But... But he loves each and every one of us. He cares for us. He sent his son to die on the cross for us because we cannot be perfect. But with God, all things are possible. And, and it is that simple task. And I encourage anyone here who hasn't making that, taken that first step to take that step. In a moment here, Pastor Jim's going to stand up and he's going to give you that incredible opportunity of a lifetime. Don't pass it up. None of us know our final day, whether it be when we step out of this church or whether we live to be that 105 in that nursing home with our wife by our side. None of us know that. So I encourage you, if you feel that in your heart, that feeling, that nudge, that urge in your heart to stand up, stand up and accept Jesus uh, into your life when Pastor gives you this opportunity. I'll do it now. Okay, so here, here's how we're going to conclude. 
Uh, this is a, a decision that you make in prayer. Prayer is just talking to God. So it may have been a long time since you've had a conversation like this with God. Uh, this may be the first time you have this kind of a conversation. But I'm going to ask you right now at our four campuses, uh, would you just bow your heads with me? And I'm going to walk you through the sort of prayer. When, when Nick talks about surrendering your life to God, no doubt some of us are asking, well, what do you say? What are the words? So I'm going to give you some words. Not that these are the exact words you need to say, but the sentiment of what I share in the next few minutes has, you've got to own it. got to be yours. So if you want to begin the sort of relationship with Christ that Nick has been describing, I want you right now to pray from your heart something like this. Dear God, I know that spiritually speaking, I'm not alive. That my sin has separated me from you because you're a perfectly holy God. And I'm not. And I could sense that distance that I don't want to continue. I want the impasse to be broken. And so I confess my sins to you. I say, please forgive me. Not because I deserve to be forgiven but because your son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross to take the penalty that my sins deserve. He died my death. And so right now, I want to put my hope and my trust in him. I don't know that I've ever consciously, deliberately done this before, but right now, on this Sunday in November of 2014, I want to surrender my life to Christ. And I invite Jesus to come in, not simply as the forgiver, but I invite him to come in as the king. And I've been struggling to live my life on my own, making my own decisions, charting my own course, and from this point on, I want Jesus to be the one doing that. I want Jesus to be the king on the throne of my life. I want your word to come alive to me. Nick has talked about how the Bible became a living book that brings him comfort and direction and counsel, and I want the Bible to become that kind of a book for me. Now, while your head is bad, I'm going to ask you to do something across our campuses at Bartlett and Blackberry Creek, DeKalb, here in St. Charles. If you made a decision like that, you prayed that prayer, spiritual decisions are hard to chart because they go unseen. And 24 hours from now, you may be asking yourself, did I really do that? Did I pray that prayer from my heart? So sometimes it's good to do something tangible as a means of saying, yep, I said that prayer and I meant it. So if you just prayed that prayer and you surrendered your life to Christ, here's what I want you to do. Just stick your hand in the air and put it back down on your lap. That's it. Just a physical way of saying, okay, see it around the auditorium, at our other campuses, up in the balcony in St. Charles. If you just surrendered your, your life to Christ, good. Anybody else? Just put it up in the air and then put it back down on your lap. That's what I want to do. You know, this is just a marker. This is just a bookmark saying, yep, I'll be able to look back on this day and say, I know I made that decision. That was the beginning of a walk with Christ. Now, in just a moment, I'm going to close this prayer, and when I do, the campus pastors at the other campuses are going to be on stage, and they're going to be describing what next steps you could take if you want to, want to make this first step into a daily walk. They'll describe that for you. God, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for a story like Nick's that, that not only inspires, but it turns the spotlight on you. We've got a brother here who's willing to say, boy, I've screwed up, and I need Christ. 
And for someone who's done such famous acts, Lord, that's a good thing for us to hear. It doesn't matter who you are and how many people have watched you on TV. There needs to come a place of surrender. That's what many of us have just done. So please accept our surrender and Jesus come to live in our hearts by faith. We pray in your name. Amen. Right now at our four campuses, our campus pastors are holding up this packet of information and saying this is available for you. We call this a next steps packet. It's a bunch of different resources here. If you raised your hand a moment ago, you took the first step that I hope doesn't become a single step. You know, so six months from now, it's all forgotten. You know, you learn from Nick, this is an ongoing walk. God, God plays a daily role in your life through Christ. This information will help you do that. One of the things in the packet is a New Testament, a Bible, the story of Jesus. And so if you've never read it on your own or it's never been an alive book to you because you've never surrendered to Christ, pick this packet up. It can become a live book to you. There's other information in here about what next steps to take that will help you make this into a daily walk. This packet of information is available free. It's in the Welcome Center here in St. Charles as well as at our other campuses. Uh, we give out, last year we gave out about 600 of these over the course of the year. So all the time people at Christ Community Church are saying, yep, this is me. I just made this decision. I want to begin to follow Christ. So in order to pick up your packet, I'm aware of the fact that when hundreds of people leave an auditorium like this, you're going to get carried by the wave. And the wave is going to take you right past the entrance of the Welcome Center. You're going to go past and not pick this up. So I'm going to give you a chance to pick it up ahead of time. We're going to close in a song. We're going to stand. We're going to sing a couple verses of a song. And while we're singing, if you raised your hand or you wanted to raise your hand, but you couldn't get it up in the air. You knew God speaking to you and saying, yeah, I got to pray this prayer. I got to surrender to Christ. What I want you to do during the song is slip out of your road. Just elbow your way past the people who are standing. Make your way to the Welcome Center. Pick up your Next Steps packet. It will mean you'll get first in line to get out of our parking lot. <laughs> now, that's a really good reason to surrender to Christ, right? <laughs> so, but in all seriousness, you know, you kind of... That hand in the air was like a little first step, and now I'm already asking you to take another step, a bold step. But I saw scores of people do it at our service last night, and I truly believe God's going to lead many of you to do it in the next few moments. We're going to stand up to sing, and those of you who raised your hand or wish you had, you're going to get out of your own. You're going to pick this up and say, I mean business. I'm not ashamed to say this is a step I need to take in my life. So, in order to get to our feet, a good way to get to our feet is via a standing ovation for our guest. So, thank you.